traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In the multiverse that is the Twilight Zone, I often try and make sense of why it does what it does. Why some are punished while others aren't. And it's easy to see why the cosmic justice dished out to some is deserved. But every now and again, something happens seemingly for no reason at all. I think it's in our nature as human beings to try and make order out of chaos and in our nature as fans to try and join the dots. Maybe to try and create continuity where there is none. In this show, The Twilight Zone, the only true constant is our host, Rod Sailing. And you could argue that Sailing isn't a character in the show at all. But I would argue differently. There is Rod Sailing, the writer who comes on screen after the story is finished and tells you what's coming next week. But then there's Rod Sailing who introduces and closes out our episode with this beautifully phrased and insightful poetry. That Rod Sailing, for me, is part of the Twilight Zone. He may be God or Guide or something completely beyond our understanding, but he is the constant in this crazy multiverse. But is he the only one? In a manner of speaking, no. In The Howling Man we meet the devil, and when he's spoke of, he's described as appearing throughout history in various forms, but always war and death would follow him. And in the Twilight Zone we see several of those forms. We've met him in Escape Clause, a nice place to visit, and of course the Howling Man. His presence was felt in Still Valley, and we'll meet him again before this journey is over. But tonight's Twilight Zone wraps up a trilogy of stories concerning another recurring character, and he too wears different faces. We met him first in the second episode, one for the angels, and then again in the hitchhiker, and he was mentioned, but not seen, in the opening of Long Distance Call. That character is, of course, Death, or as he is sometimes known in the Twilight Zone, Mr. Death. Wanda Dawn lives alone in a dilapidated building, and she daren't venture outside for fear of bumping into Mr. Death. But tonight we'll come face to face with him yet again, in Nothing in the Dark. Why can't you leave me alone? I know who you are. I know what you are. An old woman living in a nightmare. An old woman who has fought a thousand battles with death and always won. Now she's faced with a grim decision. Whether or not to open a door. 
And in some strange and frightening way, she knows that this seemingly ordinary door leads to the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on January 5th, 1962. Written by George Clayton Johnson and directed by Lamont Johnson. Now before we get into the story, I have to comment on how good I think this pre-narration opening is. This apartment was a set on the MGM lot and it's just dressed beautifully, the ragged belongings of a woman who's using the same things that she's used for decades. Then we have this slow shot steadily moving across the room until we see Wanda in bed. Then just a glimpse of the outside world as we see the policeman before he's shot. What a great opening. And it's a very short opening narration from Rod Serling. As I said in my opening, and I've said many times before, I see this Rod Serling as some kind of entity from the Twilight Zone. The only one who really knows what's going on. But if there is another entity who can stand shoulder to shoulder with this deific version of Serling, it is of course Mr. Death. So probably by accident more than design, it's almost as if there isn't room for two celestial beings in this show. So Sailing quickly says his piece and moves aside. Now it seems that we have Lamont Johnson back in the director's chair rather quickly after his triumph with five characters in search of an exit, but actually that's not really the case. I don't really go into this because it's a tad confusing at times, but the order of the Twilight Zone as broadcast is not necessarily the order as filmed. For example, we've already met Lamont Johnson when we visited the shelter and five characters in search of an exit. But the shelter was filmed in May 1961, five characters in June 1961, but Nothing in the Dark was filmed in April 1961. So this is actually the first episode that he helmed. And in The Twilight Zone Companion he said, The whole mystique of The Twilight Zone appealed to me as a tremendous drenching relief from the Dr. Kildare's and Have Gun Will Travels and things that I was doing. These were wonderfully theatrical games for me and it was a joy to do them. Nothing in the Dark was actually supposed to be the last episode in Season 2, but according to Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, it was kept back to give them a bit of a head start with Season 3, so they would know they had a couple of good episodes in hand. Now after a conversation with the police officer who was just shot, whose name is Harold Belden, Wanda Dunn, against her better judgement, gives in and brings Harold inside. She believes him to be Mr. Death, but she can't be absolutely sure. And after helping him in, her worries are put to rest, for the moment at least. Even, even if I could call a doctor somehow, I couldn't take a chance and let him in. Don't you see? He might be him. Him? Mr. Death. I know he's out there. He's trying to get in. He comes to the door and knocks. 
He begs me to let him in. Last week he said he came from the gas company. Oh, he's clever. After that he claimed to be a contractor hired by the city. I knew who he was. He said this building was condemned that I'd have to leave. I kept the door locked. And he went away. He knows I'm on to him. So is this the rambling of a crazy old lady, or is she onto something, or is it a bit of both? Does she have perspective that only old age will bring? Now her old neighbourhood is being torn down, the people she knows going away, and her body becoming more frail. I think she does see death around every corner, but it's not necessarily the death. It's that building up of things that we see happening to others as they age, starting to happen to us. We watch older people maybe become more isolated as their friends and loved ones die, and we see their behaviours change to cope with the age that they are becoming. So when you see these signs in yourself, then you start to know where that's heading. And it's this speech that really illustrates that. At first, I couldn't be sure. It was a long time ago. I was on a bus. There was an old woman sitting in front of me, knitting. Socks, I think. There was something about her face. I felt I knew her. Then this young man got on. There were empty seats, but he sat down beside her. He didn't say anything, but his being there upset her. He seemed a nice young man. When she dropped her yarn, he picked it up. Right in front of me, he held it out to her. I saw their fingers touch. He got out at the next stop. When the bus reached the end of the line, she was dead. So she goes on to describe all these other brushes with death. She saw signs of death when it happened to others, and now she recognises those signs when they happen to her. She talks about when she was younger, the carefree attitude she had and how she loved to be in the sun. She didn't recognise death when she was younger, but the older she gets, the more she does. I find that when Wanda Dunn, or rather the actor Gladys Cooper speaks, I'm just kind of spellbound by her. You know, the dialogue is poetry and she speaks it so well, the looks off into the distance as she remembers, the certainty in her voice. So let's take a moment to meet Gladys Cooper. One of the things I've enjoyed so far meeting some of these actors in the Twilight Zone is just touching upon how their careers often span such different eras of television and film because the mediums were advancing so much at that time. Now this is something we spoke about with Buster Keaton recently, but one of our stars in this episode, Gladys Cooper, was actually born before Keaton He was born in 1895, but she was born in 1888. 
She actually began her show business career as a photographic model in England when she was six years old. But she decided that she wanted to move into acting and, in her late teens, she trod the boards on the London stage. But then in 1913, she made her screen debut in the British film The Eleventh Commandment, which was a silent movie of course, and one of several that she would take part in. But not only was she a talented actor, but she was a bit of a pioneer in other areas of the work. She began to co-manage the Playhouse Theatre, which was unusual for a woman at that time. And between 1927 and 1933, she took sole control. So there was this gradual advancement for her over time on both stage and screen, and she built her reputation. Of note is a small but memorable part in Alfred Hitchcock's Hollywood debut, Rebecca, in 1940. So she really was an actor's actor and jumped from stage to television to film constantly and even came back to England to work as well as working in the US. This is her first of three Twilight Zones. She returns in Passage on the Lady Anne and Night Call and she also appeared in The Outer Limits in 1963 in the episode The Borderland. I've found that with this episode, Nothing in the Dark, there isn't a huge amount of trivia because it's quite a simple story, it has a small cast, and it's shot in one location. But what there is, what does exist, focuses mainly on these two actors. Now the director Lamont Johnson had previously directed Gladys Cooper on the stage, and he said this in The Twilight Zone Companion. I insisted on Gladys for the role. She was a great lady of theatre, and she had an elegant, polished London Mayfair kind of speech. But it seemed incongruous for that character, who's a sort of Apple Mary character. Everyone said, oh, she's such a great, elegant lady. How could she possibly? I said, she can do it. And I talked to her, and she thought it was a terrific idea. So she tried various accents for me. One kind of North Country, which was still too fanciful. And then she had a nice kind of nasal low London quality that was just a bit common and slightly whiny, which was just right. And George Clayton Johnson said, when I first heard her talking with the Cockney accent, I didn't think it would work. I thought she should play it with her own voice, an old woman's voice. But she said, no, no. She started to do this strange British accent, and I fell right into believing it. There's part of a quote in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia by Stephen J. Rubin, where Lamont Johnson says of Gladys Cooper, I got her on this, and that enchanted rod. There was something, this ineffable majesty of her age, the incredible sort of wrinkles of this gorgeous woman, who... Somerset Maughan had called the great beauty of the first part of the 20th century. Here she was showing everything, and Rod was enchanted by her. I really like that quote, and what Lamont Johnson calls the ineffable majesty of her age. Because I think it's true, the way she looks kind of goes beyond her as a person. She's almost like an archetype, something from our collective subconscious 
that this is what an old woman looks like. It's perfect casting, and she brings this quality that really sells that this woman is existing through sheer determination not to die. It transcends any frailty that she has because of her years. What is she trying to live for? She stays in her apartment. She doesn't see anyone. She's clinging on to life, but she's not living. I think it's a magical performance by Gladys Cooper. Now, were it not for the arrival of another character, this would be one of those famous Twilight Zone two-handers. Of course, we've seen this episode before, so we know who death really is. But on first viewing, George Clayton Johnson throws in a little curveball here to keep us guessing. But also, it's a little bit more than that. When a contractor pushes his way into the apartment and Wanda falls to the floor, this is clearly telegraphed to make us think that the contractor is death, especially when he lays a hand on her when she is on the floor. Now this contractor has a face we've seen many times in many television shows and films. He's a very prolific supporting actor called R.J. Armstrong, who lived a good long life from 1917 until his death in 2012 at the age of 95. And still I live. You got to understand, ma'am, I, I don't get no pleasure out of busting indoors. You don't seem to realize how important this is. I've got a crew and equipment coming in an hour to pull this tenement down. Begging your pardon, ma'am, but it's long overdue. I I'm surprised it's still standing. And you're really not Mr. Death? I don't know what you're talking about. All, all I know is I, I got a contract to demolish this row of buildings. Well, everybody else moved out long ago. I, until the other day, I, I thought this building was deserted. I, I seen them windows boarded up, and I, I figured you moved when the rest of them did. You want me to go outside? You want me to leave here? I can't. You were notified months ago, right? I'm just trying to do my job. These buildings were condemned by the city, and I'm the one who's got to tear them down. How can you? This building has had it. It's worn out, used up. All these buildings have got to come down. I ain't a monster lady. I'm, I've got a heart just, just like anybody else, but... Uh, I can see how you could get attached to a place and not want to see it wrecked, but... When a building is old, it's dangerous. It, it's it's got to come down to, to make room for a new one. That's life, lady. Oh, make room for the new. People get the idea that I'm some kind of destroyer, but they, they think I get kicks out of uh, tearing stuff down. That ain't the way it is. I I just clear the ground so other people can build. In a way, I help him do it. So it's not much of a stretch to see what the point of the contractor is in this story. His description of his role in tearing down buildings to make room for new ones 
is a perfect allegory for death itself and a good illustration of what this episode is all about. That death is part of life and we aren't treated any differently from anything else, whether it's a building or an animal. The whole process is one of renewal. We all have our time. And when the contractor is trying to convince Wanda to leave, she turns to Harold to explain why she can't go out. But of course, the contractor can't see him. So before Harold gets his shine a moment, let's meet the actor who played him. Here we have a young and handsome Robert Redford playing Officer Harold Belden, a.k.a. Mr. Death. Now what Robert Redford went on to do is not going to be of any great surprise to listeners of this show. So let's just see where he was at this point in his career. After he left high school, he went to college on a baseball scholarship, but was kicked out due to drunkenness. After that, he spent some years drifting across America, taking various jobs and working in the oil fields of California. So his lifestyle became quite bohemian. And then he saved enough money to go to Europe and study art in Paris and Florence. When he returned to America, he enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. So this Twilight Zone is a couple of years after he made his screen debut in 1960 and he was just a job and actor doing his thing in television popping up as characters in anthology series of the day most notably for us in an episode of Playhouse 90 called In the Presence of Mine Enemies in 1960 which was written by Rod Serling and that took place in the Warsaw Ghetto so it's another example of Rod Serling being a pioneer in the depiction of the Holocaust on television. May 18th, 1960, from Television City in Hollywood. A special presentation on Playhouse 90. Starring Charles Lawton, Arthur Kennedy, Susan Conner, Oscar Homolka, George McCready, Sam Jaffe, and introducing Robert Redford. Playhouse 90, brought to you by the Allstate Insurance Companies, whose policies now include protection for your home, your family, as well as your car. You're in good hands with Allstate. I think for a lot of us, when we move down Robert Redford's list of credits, Apart from his Twilight Zone, of course, the thing that will stick out to us most, if we go chronologically, is his career-defining role in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 1969. But of course he was here in the Twilight Zone first, so how did he get here? Now this is a story that seems to have been documented a few times in various forms, but the telling that I'll read to you is from the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia by Steve Rubin. Director Lamont Johnson said, We had to think of the young man who played Death, of which the character that Gladys was playing was horrifically afraid. And I said, it has to be someone terribly attractive. And I'd seen this kid on Playhouse 90, 
Ethelwine and said she thought his name was Redford, whom we brought in to read for Gladys, because she was very particular who she played with in this. And when we got through it, she said, Oh, darling, get him for me. I thought he responded and did something quite magical with death, and he was extremely charming. He flirted with Gladys in a very elegant way, and this totally did it for Gladys. Rod and I were delighted with this, and we talked about it when we reviewed the cut that I made. To both of us, it was important that an old person facing death be seduced by perennial youth and beauty, and there was a certain sexuality to it, which was part of Rod's multifaceted and multi-layered imagination about things. It didn't scream out sex, it didn't scream out any particular subtext, but it was there, and it was very implicit in the script. Now interestingly, Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion says that he thinks Redford is the only thing that damages the eloquence of the episode. He compares him to a male mannequin. Now, on The Twilight Zone Blu-rays, Mark Zickery actually does a commentary with George Clayton Johnson on this episode. Now, I've often said I don't actually listen to the commentaries before recording this show because it would then become too easy to just parrot what they say in the commentary. But I'm really going to look forward to listening to this one to see whether that's a view that he still holds, especially when he's sitting next to George Clayton Johnson. Now in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr., George Clayton Johnson says, We were invited to watch the screening after the first day of filming, and sitting in the back was Robert Redford. He was covering his face during most of the showing, and when the film was done, he walked out and left without speaking to anyone. Later, I was told that Redford did not like himself in the film, but I thought, and still think, that he was absolutely perfect. He was down to earth, attractive, and what would you expect from a man who represented death? In the same entry by Martin Grams Jr., though, is a quote from Redford himself, and... It seems that maybe he's mellowed a bit on his performance with time. He says, I recall how everything from the director to the actors to the designers had everything ready from the moment we began filming. It was so laid out that by the time we finished the last scene, it felt like a few hours had passed by. Gladys Cooper was a wonderful woman to work with, and a pro all the way. That was a good script too. Of course, no one ever thought then that the episode would become a classic and shown all around the world like it is today. I don't prefer to look back at my earliest efforts, but I have to admit, to this day, I'm proud of that one. So where do I sit with this one? Well, I don't think you can deny that Redford does seem fairly green here if you've seen any of his later work. I haven't seen his performance in that Playhouse 90 episode to see whether this is just what his acting was like at the time, or whether these were choices he was making in his portrayal. But if you've seen any of his later work, you can clearly see that perhaps he's not at the height of his powers yet. But does that make it a bad performance? I don't think so. The point of this story is to present death in a more natural way, 
to remove all of the pomposity from it. This isn't a death who wears robes and marches in announcing I'm the Lord of Death or, you know, other such grandiose statements while he holds a scythe. To be human is to die and to be death is to be an aspect of humanity. So of course we want that to be calm and peaceful and in a way beautiful. So Redford, whether by choice or coincidence, has an innocence about him and although Redford is a handsome man, at this point he's not quite as chiselled and defined as he'd later become. He'd be around 25, 26 at this point and he still has a little puppy fat and bit of youthfulness about him rather than being the matinee idol that he would become. But this is why it all works for me. He's angelic in a sense, but not in an obvious and manufactured way. I think there would be a temptation if this episode were made in a different time or place to have Mr. Death be that chiseled picture of perfection with a well-practiced and assured delivery. But instead, I think here, Redford is a picture of beauty and innocence and sincerity and we could go on and on with this and start to talk about what Lamont Johnson touched upon there with the flirtation and the sexuality you know who better to seduce you into the afterlife than someone young and beautiful but I think we get the idea so while I do think Redford is undoubtedly a little green here perhaps he was just the right actor at the right time No shock, no engulfment, no tearing asunder. What you feared would come like an explosion is like a whisper. What you thought was the end, the beginning. When will it happen? When will we go? Go? After experiencing nothing in the dark, I find its effect to be a subtle one. To borrow a line from Mr. Death, no shock, no engulfment, no tearing asunder. What you feared would come like an explosion is like a whisper. And the effect of this episode is the same. Instead of layering on sentiment or having the actors over emote to try and force some reaction from the audience. The lessons in Nothing in the Dark come to you like a breeze. And yes, there is some nice music playing in the background, but it's not overplayed. And the whole episode is beautifully understated because that's the whole point. You can't have a story trying to sell you the concept of death coming to you like a whisper and really lay it on too thick. Now George Clayton Johnson will comment on growing old in the episode Kick the Can, how you can still keep that spark of youth in your later years if you just keep that mindset. 
But here, he's saying, when it's time, it's time. Don't be afraid of it. I've enjoyed Death's previous appearances in the Twilight Zone. The bureaucrat in One for the Angels who was similar in his outlook that death is part of life but presented it more as a transaction, something that had to happen to make sure everything was where it needed to be, everything was balanced. Or the object of fear in The Hitchhiker, the thing we're constantly trying to outrun but can only outrun it for so long. But I think Nothing in the Dark is my favourite depiction of death in the Twilight Zone, and probably my favourite episode about death. People have fictionalised and glorified death in so many ways, in so many stories, but Nothing in the Dark strips all that away and just says that death is part of life. There's an elegance to this story, a flow, it's quite simple, but that's its strength. It's all about that coexistence between parts of life and how they should be embraced in their own way. Summer doesn't fight the autumn, and autumn doesn't fight to stay when the winter comes. They flow into each other, sometimes coming early, sometimes coming late, but never anything to be afraid of. George Clayton Johnson believed that he achieved perfection with nothing in the dark, and I'm inclined to agree. There was an old woman who lived in a room, and like all of us was frightened of the dark, but who discovered in a minute last fragment of her life that there was nothing in the dark that wasn't there when the lights were on. Object lesson for the more frightened amongst us, in or out, of the Twilight Zone. What a beautiful episode that was. I think before we move on, just a quick note. The Rondo Awards closing deadline is nearly upon us. I might just get this out in time, but if you haven't voted, I would really appreciate it. And you can go to the twilightzonepodcast.com slash Rondo, R-O-N-D-O, to find out how. And if you can't take a moment, all it takes is an email, then who knows, you know, there's a possibility that we might win. You know, there's some heavy hitters in there, so I'm not going to count my chickens, but you never know, you never know. And also a quick note to thank longtime supporter of the show, James Baxter, for pointing out that I actually read the same email that I'd read in a previous show, in the last show. Um, you know, it happens from time to time, especially because the, the um, schedule is quite sporadic, and I do get a lot of email, and I have to kind of pluck out the ones that I'm going to read so sometimes I lose track and you know if I've ever received an email from you and I've either not thanked you by email or read it out on the show then I do apologize it's never on purpose but I do get quite a volume of mail coming in so I do lose track a little bit sometimes but let's check out a couple of emails now and hope that I haven't read them before in submitted for your approval This one comes from Jason and he says, Tom, love the show. Almost done with season two, but I keep current as well. And now that you're about to do nothing in the dark, I couldn't help but send a line. 
This is one of my favourite Twilight Zone episodes. The story, the camera work, the directing, the acting, it's all great. I love stories where death is personified, especially where he isn't a bad guy. Death is part of life, as much as life is part of our birth. This is brilliantly portrayed by Sailing as he compares Mr. Death and the old woman with the contractor and the old building. The contractor says this building has had it, it's worn out, used up. All these buildings have got to come down. I ain't a monster lady. I've got a heart just like anybody else. It's got to come down to make room for new ones. That's life lady. Old make room for the new. Well, people get the idea that I'm kind of a destroyer. But they think I get kicks out of tearing stuff down. That ain't the way it is. I just clear the ground so other people can build. In a way, I help them do it. And Jason goes on to say the old woman is frail just like the building and it's time for it to come down. Mr. Death isn't a monster. He is just clearing the ground so other people can build. When I first watched this episode, I remember falling in love with the writing in the Twilight Zone, especially Rod Serling's. It's one of, if not the most prolific reasons the show is as timeless as it is. I think this episode is a masterpiece, and I hope that someday I can say that I made something this beautiful. Keep up the great work, Jason. Thank you for writing in, Jason. I can't really add anything to that apart from to say that I completely agree. You know, I think it's a masterpiece too. Going through these episodes of The Twilight Zone, even knowing what I know about the show, you go through and, and you're still constantly surprised, I think, that they come out with new things, new ways of looking at life, new classic episodes. So, great stuff. Thanks for writing in, Jason. I've had an email from Lauriston, and I think I got this a while ago, but I should have read it out in the last episode. But like I said, I lose track sometimes, so I just want to make sure. He says, Hello Tom, I listen to both of your shows, Twilight Zone and Lost in the Omniverse. I'm a huge fan of both. When I first came across Twilight Zone, I was like three years behind, and I thought it would take a couple of years to catch up, but I blazed through the episodes in a few months. And like everyone else, I look forward to the next episode. I don't want to bore you with the usual accolades you probably hear about your hosting, but I did start following you on The Strange and Deadly Show and was pleasantly surprised to hear your other human side with your co-host Chris Clayton. It reminded me of listening to Rod Sailing at UCLA. I had only heard Rod Sailing on The Twilight Zone and he's always so serious and it's kind of fun hearing them crack jokes. So listening to you outside of the Twilight Zone with Chris Clayton had the same response. I now look forward to listening to both of you on Lost in the Omniverse. Your work is very much appreciated and has inspired me to start a podcast piece from Los Angeles, and that is from Lauriston. Well, thank you, Lauriston, and, and do let me know what your podcast is. It'd be interesting to listen to it. So I like the comparison that you made there between kind of the serious side of sailing and the, the more fun side that he does. And a lot of people who listen to this will know that I do appear on two other podcasts as well, The Strange and Deadly Show, which is about horror movies, and 
also Lost in the Omniverse, which is about superhero movies. And that kind of leads me on to something that I wanted to mention, so thank you, Lauriston. Over on the Twilight Zone podcast Patreon page, you know, I've been experimenting with the content on there. You know, obviously, you try things, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, and I think... The key is to, you know, if something doesn't feel quite right, then just to maybe put it to one side and try something new. Now, I've always wanted to keep the costs really low on there, to be honest. The top tier for just getting bonus content is $3, but even people who pledge at $1 or $2 get bonus content. You know, I like to think it's a fair way of doing things. Uh, People can get extra content for less than the cost of a cup of coffee. So I did have one plan for the $3 level, but it kind of isn't going to work just yet. So in the meantime, I've substituted it with something else. And it's kind of like a bridge between my show, The Strange and Deadly Show, and The Twilight Zone Podcast. And that show is going to be called Strange and Deadly's Television Terror. And what that show is going to be is a discussion podcast with my friend Chris Clayton, looking at anthology horror television. And that's going to start in April at the $3 donation level. And of course, and of course, you can't look at horror anthology television without looking at Night Gallery. So the format of this show is going to be a double bill. And in the first part of it, we're going to look at an episode of Rod Sailing's Night Gallery and review all the stories in that. And in the second part of it, we're going to review an episode of the very popular television show, Tales from the Crypt. So it'll be this sort of double bill format like we do in the Strange and Deadly show. So that is there if anyone wants to support the show on Patreon. And I appreciate everyone who has. You know, you really enable me to keep this show going by paying the host and fees and so on. And I appreciate it. So I'll keep making them if you keep supporting it. So... I want to say thanks to the following people. A new iTunes review on US iTunes from RC Sutton's iPod. Thank you so much. And also thanks to new Patreon supporters or executive producers as I like to call them. Rob, Ben Cooper and Scott Southwick. So thank you guys. I I really appreciate you taking the time to do that to keep the show on the air. If you want to comment on the Twilight Zone podcast, comment on an upcoming episode or one that we've already done, then you can email me at tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. If you want to support the show on Patreon, then go to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. I've also started an Instagram page, and I believe that is instagram.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And I'm trying to do something a bit different with it. You know, there are pages out there are pages out there who post stills from the show, that kind of thing, which is great, but they've already got that covered. So I try and post kind of interesting imagery related to the Twilight Zone instead of instead of just being another account that posts stills. So, you know, it's a it's a new way of interacting with people. So check it out. Instagram.com slash Twilight Zone Podcast. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week on The Twilight Zone, we let you in on a, an extravagant practical joke. A man who wants to convey an illusion that the world is coming to an end. 
Now, there are jokes and there are jokes, but this one stands all by itself as an exercise in the very different and the very bizarre. Our play is called One More Pallbearer, and we commend it to you as something quite special. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations. 